You are listening to episode number 78 of the Unfolding Words podcast, Creation, a Divine Act of Love. My name is Antracia Moorings, and welcome to my weekly podcast where I share biblical truth to offer light for your walk and life for your soul. This is the first week of 2020 if you are listening to this podcast on release date. And I just want to say I pray that you are having a most blessed 2020, even though we're only a few days into it. So this week starts the launch of the Genesis study, Dust and Divinity, where we will be walking through chapters 1 through 11. And if you don't have the study guide yet, you can still pick that up on Amazon. It's called Dust and Divinity. And how it works is that you do the reading first for each chapter that's outlined in the study guide and then answer the questions. And then you listen to the weekly podcast, which includes the teachings for the week. So that's how this podcast Bible study is structured. And I'm going to touch on answers that are in the study guide. But if you feel like I'm not giving enough answers or you want more feedback or insight, you can always email me, leave a comment on the blog post on my website at unfoldingwords.com. Or you can join the Unfolding Words Facebook group. It's called Unfolding Words. Just answer a few questions and you can pop in there, leave a question. It's a more closed environment. So if you want to dive in without the world seeing, you can do it there. So this week, we are going to chat about Genesis chapter number one. And I'm not going to go into basics or background about the book, because I covered that in the study guide. So you can read about the author, the audience, all of that in the Bible study guide. But one thing I do want to point out about the book of Genesis, actually about the Bible, on the whole, is that it's not just a piece of history. You really need to read the Bible as a piece of literature. And theologian James B. Jordan said this about that subject. The Bible is literature. The books of the Bible are each literary masterpieces, self-consciously conceived and written according to form and style. But they are ancient literature, employing ancient literary forms and devices unfamiliar to us today. Too many people today unthinkingly assume that the Bible was written by modern men. Few people could read, and there was no easy way to write very much. Reproduction was by hand copying. Thus, writers were constrained to make every jot and tittle count. They did this by the use of literary structures such as chiasms, which I talk about in the Bible study, and palistropes, which are huge chiasms that cover vast reaches of text. They did this by the use of symbolic numbers and numerical structures. They did this by the use of symbolic names, particularly in the Bible, since it is a cumulative book. They did it by means of allusions to pre-existing literature. In this way, they could say a lot in a small compass. For the alert reader, the only kind there was back then, knew to pour over the text for additional depth. Nowadays, we rarely encounter this kind of writing. And that's the end of his quote. So when you approach the Bible, think of it as a piece of literature. When you read a novel, you pay, you pay attention to story structure and characters and what they're saying and symbolism. You realize that this story is layered. And so you want to get every bit of the story that you can. So you pay attention to every breadcrumb that the author drops. You want to do the same thing with the Bible. 
So in Genesis 1-1, we see that the Bible uses an approach to scripture where they declare the truth and it's called a presuppositional approach. And this approach asserts that our Christian beliefs are true because they are true. The Bible does not try to prove the existence of God. So Genesis is not a apologetic work where it's trying to convince someone to believe it. It's just stating true facts. And the Bible is not trying to give convincing evidence for God's existence and truth. It's just plainly stating what we, the readers, already believe to be true, or most of the readers already believe to be true. And the Bible does not have any neutrality or any sympathy for those who want to reject the claims of the Bible. It does not waste its words trying to make sense of the story it's trying to tell to unbelievers. We just want to get that right out the gate that the this account in Genesis is believed to be true because the author believed it to be true. And so since this is the approach, the Bible sees anyone who does not share this presuppositional belief as foolish. We see this in Psalms 14, 1 and Romans chapter 1, verses 21 and 22. Genesis 1-1 teaches us how to approach unbelievers. We should graciously tell them the truth and share with them the faith upon which we stand. And so we accept by faith that all things were made by him and without him was not anything made that was made. That's John 1 and 3. This world is God's creation. There is no Big Bang Theory. That's, that's the attitude of Genesis 1. And Genesis is important because it corrected the Israelites thinking away from the culture's thinking that they existed in at that time. Now, remember, they were coming out from under Egypt's polytheistic influence after like 200, 400 years. And they were about to enter the promised land, which was full of Canaanites, Hittites, Jebusites, who had their own way of thinking about the world. So the Israelites needed to know who they were and whose they were. So Genesis 1-1 alone refutes nine arguments. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. That alone refutes atheism, which says there is no God. Pantheism, which says everything is God. Polytheism, which believes that there are many gods. Genesis 1-1 refutes materialism, which says that matter is eternal. It refutes dualism, which believes that good and evil are equal. Humanism, which says that man is the measure of all things. Naturalism, where there's a belief that all things form from matter. It refutes evolution, which is the belief that man evolved from a lower life form. And deism, which says that God is not involved in creation, though he created it. The natural laws rule. Genesis 1-1 stands for truth. And we see that God the Father used his word to create, which references the coming Messiah. We see God hovering over the waters, which references the Holy Spirit. And the totality of who God is was present at creation. This story is not the beginning of God. This account in Genesis is not about the beginning of God because God is eternal. He always existed. But it is about the beginning of his creation and his relationship with mankind. We want to keep that in mind. 
the scriptures say the earth was without form and void and darkness was over the face of the deep and the spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And we get a picture of God's character and his nature with this verse. And in the study guide, I had you look up Deuteronomy 32 and 11, which says like an eagle that stirs up its nest, that flutters over its young, spreading out its wings, catching them, bearing them on its pinions. God is exhibiting such a care and a loving kindness over his creation with his spirit hovering over creation. So we see that God's love is evident in his careful and his deliberate act of creation. He took seven days to establish a pattern for us and show that he had a careful attention to detail in creation. We see his gentleness in provision. We see great care in handling his creation. It it conjures up the image of a pregnant mother. She wants to get everything right, everything set in its place before the baby comes. And that's sort of the image that we see with God and creation. And the interesting thing about this verse is that it references an eagle stirring up its nest. And when an eagle was waiting for an egg to hatch, she waited patiently over the nest for all the eggs to be hatched. And as she held her slightly outstretched wings over those newly formed eggs, she would tremble or flutter ever so lightly, just like that eagle in Deuteronomy. And bird experts say this careful motion is designed to stir the air and keep the temperature just right for the new ducklings. Isn't that interesting? So God was making sure conditions were just right for mankind who he would soon bring into creation. Moses gives a detailed account of each day. We see that God is a God of order. Creation is a sevenfold structure, just like the tabernacle account. So if you've ever read the creation of the tabernacle in Exodus, you see that it patterns this sevenfold structure. And Moses's account of the construction of the tabernacle includes seven speeches of Moses. Just studying the creation of the tabernacle, so many patterns emerge. That's like a whole nother Bible study in, a, in and of itself. So if you ever have time to study that, I say go for that. You'll learn a lot. So the seven days equals temple patterns. And Israel's temples are dedicated with seven day ceremonies. We see this with the tabernacle in Leviticus, Solomon's temple in First Kings, and Ezekiel's new temple in Ezekiel. And as God is creating, he's creating with his word. God said is mentioned 10 times in this chapter. In Psalms 33, it says, by the word of the Lord, the heavens were made. This is establishing God's word as the authority. The patriarchs will need to heed God's word. And so do we. So right off the bat, God's word is what everything lines up to. And we see God's spirit of orderliness in how he creates and what he creates on each day. So on day one, he creates day and night. Day two, the skies and the seas. Day three, dry land. Day four, he makes lights. Day five, the birds in the sky and the fish in the sea. Day six, he makes humans. And then day seven is the day of Sabbath or rest. So we see that God forms first and then he fills. So he made the day and night, filled it with the lights. He made the skies and the seas, filled it with the birds and the fish. 
He made the dry land, filled it up with vegetation and humans. It's just so like God to have an order to things. And we know that God determines order as well as function. That's why we see that the scriptures say this is very good because God had a design, a specific design for everything that he created. And because it acted according to the word that he set forth, then it was very good. You look at Genesis 1-1, it has seven words in the Hebrew. So if you know Hebrew, you will recognize that it has seven words in it. The number seven is the number of completeness, divine perfection, or something that is finished or perfect or has a perfect order. Even the retelling of creation has order. God and the pronoun are used 35 times in Genesis 1. God said is used seven times in Genesis 1. So we see that God stretched out creation over six days, and he has finished a three-story house of sorts. This is going to be a running theme in the Bible. And he takes seven days to do what he could have done in a second. But he's setting up a pattern for his three-story house, heaven, earth, and the seas, which will be modeled in so many ways. So once your eyes are open to this three-story structure, you'll see it over and over again. Even mankind was created in a three-story structure. We're a body, we have a spirit, and a soul. And one thing that is very noticeable in Genesis chapter 1 is the fact that it includes a lot of things being separated. And if you read scripture later on, you'll see that he's always calling for his people to be separate and different and set apart. God is establishing that he will have a people who are set apart for himself. Just like there's a separation and a distinction in creation, this will mirror God's people who will be separated from the nations because God has a specific purpose for them. And God also had a purpose in how he established the days. Genesis 1 reveals that the days of the week were originally measured evening and then morning. This is totally opposite to how we measure our days. Our days start in the morning and then wrap up in the evening. But this evening and then morning structure illustrates that night gave way to the morning light. What could this be pointing to? So the Jewish day started at sunset when there were three stars visible in the sky. The day represented a maturing into glory. Light swallows up darkness. And this is another thing that you're going to see over and over again in the Bible. Night is the Old Testament. It's a representation of the Old Testament where the truth is veiled. And the New Testament is the glory revealed because Jesus comes on the scene. Luke chapter one, verses 76 through 79 say this, and you child will be called the prophet of the most high for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us as from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. So Jesus is that great light that is spoken of. So all of the prophecies that were shadowed and hidden and no one quite knew the meaning of them, Jesus came and fulfilled them all and brought light to all of those things in the Old Testament that were enshadowed and that they knew in part. And then we see in Genesis 1 and 14, this theme of light continues where there's a mention of two lights, the sun and the moon, and they existed for signs and seasons, 
for days and years and to give light to the earth. They also existed to measure time and seasons. So all of creation is like a cosmic clock for us. God put a sign in the sky for natural and agricultural cycles and festivals. Festivals would be very important. They're going to be a very important component of the Israelites' life and culture. This was so that God's people would know when to worship him and in what way. So Genesis 1.14 tells us that when God made the sun, his plan was for it to function as a sign. In Genesis 1 and 16, we're told that the sun is to have dominion over the daylight hours. And throughout Genesis 1, we read the phrase, there was evening and there was morning. Before man sinned, before the fall of Adam and Eve, darkness didn't have any moral value attached to it. It was simply the time before the sun rose. But when the world became under a curse and the fall came, darkness became a sign of the period of sin before the coming reign of the Messiah. And we see this imagery all throughout the Bible. First Thessalonians 5 uses the concepts of day and darkness to describe the lifestyle of the ungodly. And the Bible also uses night and darkness to describe the Old Testament period, as I mentioned, before the coming of the day of the Lord. Another example, God revealed his covenant to Abraham at nighttime, which was a promise that salvation or freedom from the terror of the great darkness would come through his seed. It was at midnight that God killed the firstborn of all of Egypt so that Israel could march out and escape. So the whole Bible is evening first and then there's light, which is Jesus Christ. Jesus is described as the son of righteousness with healing in his wings, which we see in Malachi, because up until this time of Jesus, it was dark. The night has everything, but it's veiled and the light reveals the glory. Night is essentially swallowed up by the day. This is what salvation does. Sin is darkness and it's swallowed up by the light, which is Christ's redemption. Praise the Lord for that. So I could go on and on about the theme of light and darkness, but I'm going to stop there. So when God made Adam and Eve in the likeness and the image of God, what he was doing was establishing a sonship. God was providing a model for us to follow in life and behavior. And also dominion was established. The image of God equals dominion and authority for both male and female. So the image of God is based on kingship and sonship. We are God's symbols on the earth. So if you're a believer in God, you're a symbol on the earth of God. So everything Christ did, we are to do. We're to be imitators of Christ. We read about that in Ephesians 5. And as children of God, we also have to be obedient to his word. So God has some commands in chapter 1. In Genesis 1 and 28, he commanded mankind to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And that's still our command today for us to be fruitful and multiply and fill this earth with others who will bear the image of God and spread his glory throughout the world. I skipped a verse that I did want to speak about Genesis 1 and 26, where it says, let us make man in our image after our likeness. So when I grew up, we learned that the our pronoun referred to God being God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, that he was more than just God the Father. 
But there are many theologians who believe that this is referring to more than just the Godhead. Our is more than just God, the Father, God, the Son, and God, the Holy Spirit. Many theologians believe that God is referring to his divine counsel. So this is a group of angels, which includes a hierarchy of power who are sent to do God's work on his behalf in the earth. And we read about this in Psalms 82 and 1, where it says, God has taken his place in the divine council. In the midst of the gods, he holds judgment. And Michael Heiser is a theologian who has a book called The Unseen Realm, where he unpacks this concept of the divine council. And he writes this, the term divine council is used by Hebrew and Semitic scholars to refer to the heavenly host, the pantheon of divine beings, who administer the affairs of the cosmos. All ancient Mediterranean cultures had some conception of a divine council. The divine council of Israelite religion, known primarily through the Psalms, was distinct in important ways. The gods that they're referring to is a plural of Elohim, are gods or sons of the Most High, the God of Israel. So it's little g gods, which refers to simply a divine being, which angels are. So if you want to unpack that more, I'll include a link to that book in the show notes. So in Genesis 128, with man's creation, there is a different approach that God is taking. He's spoken everything else into existence. But when it comes to man, he got dirty. So what I mean by that is that he got down in the earth because mankind is made of the dust. He rolled up his sleeves, so to speak, and he created man with his hands. Now we know God doesn't physically have hands, but to give you a picture, he didn't just speak Adam into existence. He molded him and created him. He took special care when it came to his greatest creation. And creation is essentially a picture of our salvation. There are elements of redemption and salvation that are crucial when it comes to understanding creation. Everything about our salvation today comes from the creation account in Genesis chapters 1 and 3. Genesis is the seed form of all that we know to be for the rest of the Bible. So creation sets up the redemption that is to come. Adam sets up Christ. And to understand the new creation, you have to understand the creation that happened back in Genesis chapter one, where we are now. Everything that is created has to eventually be redeemed because of the sin that comes into the world. And this redemption that comes is essentially a restored creation. So when sin comes, Christ came to restore or bring back the natural order that happened in Genesis chapter one. And this is the same thing that God does for us through Jesus Christ. God takes our chaotic voidness, which is our existence in sin, and he makes our lives very good, which means that our lives are fit for the purpose for which God made it. First Timothy chapter one, verses eight through 10 say, therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God, who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began, and which now has been manifested through the appearing of our Savior, Christ Jesus, who abolished death 
and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. So the creation was without form and void, and earth was basically in a state of confusion. And when sin rules, there's nobody to rule except sin. And when sin fills a society or a person's life, the world becomes much like it was in the days of the judges. If you know the book of Judges, it constantly says, in those days, there was no king in Israel, and every man did that which was right in his own eyes. Sin has created in our hearts a darkness, a formless void where lawlessness reigns. Romans says, wherefore, as by one man sin entered into the world and death by sin, and so death passed upon all men. So when we live in this chaotic state before we're saved, we have that exists in our lives, a spirit of rebellion and selfishness that takes control of our hearts the same heart that God created. But then God comes and replaces all of that death and sorrow with blessing and joy and life, just like he did with creation. His spirit hovers over and turns it into a new creation. So the human heart that was polluted by sin becomes a new heart. God lovingly covers us with this Holy Spirit and salvation, nurtures and protects us as we accept sonship by faith. And the work of the Holy Spirit is something that we often overlook when it comes to our salvation. We need the Holy Spirit to lead and guide us into all truth, including the truth that our lives can be a mess before Christ. Our lives are often chaotic and void and dark. It is the Holy Spirit that transforms us into a believer. And even when you get saved, the Holy Spirit takes time to grow you into holiness and to develop you into the mature believer that God desires for you to be. In the book of John, it says the word was made flesh and dwelt among us. John points out that the word is the true light, which lights every man that comes into the world. So if you're a believer, thank God for that light that illuminated you and that made you into a new creation. So that's it for Genesis chapter one. There's so much more that I could go over in this chapter. Like I could spend hours on Genesis chapter one. So if you have questions, you can be sure to join the Unfolding Words group. Shoot me a question there. Go on my website at Unfolding Words and you can go to the podcast episode. I'll leave a link and you can leave questions there as well if you want some of these thoughts further developed. And don't forget, you can still pick up the study guide on Amazon, Dustin Divinity, and walk through this study with us. We still have 10 more weeks left, so you have plenty of time to catch up and even go at your own pace if you want to. And again, I want to say thank you to those of you who listen and share on social media. I so appreciate it. Those of you who listen and tag me on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram, I love it. I love to see who's listening. And if you want to reach out on social media... You can reach me on Twitter at unfolding underscore words and on Facebook and Instagram at unfolding words. That wraps up week one of the Genesis study creation, a divine act of love. And I do pray that as you go through Genesis chapter one or have gone through it already, I do pray that you see the love and care that God put into creation and especially the love and care that he put into you as a new creation. May you feel his love like you've never felt before. That's it. I'll see you back here next week for Genesis chapter two. Until then, may God's word be a lamp to your feet and a light to your path. 
God bless you.